Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 115, recorded February 16th, 2013. So this is our 53rd 90s episode. Cool. And coming right off the heels of our fantastic uh, April Fool's joke last week. Hope everybody enjoyed it. I did. Did you? I was misled. And then, oh, really? Oh, that's right. It's April Fool's. There you go. <laughs> Didn't know you were such a big Alien Nation and Planet of the Apes fan. I love the two franchises, two great franchises brought together. Right. Yes. And, and well, they were pretty good comics. Anyway. Right. Now if now that J.J. Uh, Abrams is in control of both Star Wars and Star Trek, maybe we'll uh, finally get that crossover that everybody's been wanting. Uh, I don't. I think the two universes are fine separate. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm not completely opposed to it. I just don't know that it's necessary. You know what two franchises I always wanted to see done with a crossover is Aliens and Star Wars. You really? Know, have okay. the Rebels try to, you know, some 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 fringe sect of the Rebels trying to uh, take down a, a Star Destroyer with a couple with aliens. aliens. Ah. And then you have the aliens taking out stormtroopers left and right. Oh, that would have been awesome. Well, that's kind of, it's a little bit like the, the, the zombie crossover in Star Wars. Yeah, the Red Harvest, a little bit, yep. Which but I, I had was kind alien, of interesting. I had my Alien Star Wars crossover way before, in my mind, way before Red Harvest. <laughs> before they did, before they did the, uh, the zombie crossover, okay. Uh, but anyways, uh, so hopefully everybody enjoyed it and wasn't too put off that we just change gears once a year. Yeah, it's a tradition. Yep. So anyways, but now we're back to Star Trek. Uh, yes. We're doing uh, Next Generation 61 through 63. Mm -hmm. And not horrible stories. I enjoyed them. Uh, I enjoyed all of them, too. How, how Picard is able to do the Picard maneuver that we'll see in the first issue was kind of interesting. Always a novel approach comes up in uh, space battles. The Picard maneuver. That's I've forgotten exactly. about that. You're right. Although he well, doesn't call it that. No, I, they don't call it that, but I do. So there's so many, I mean, there's so many space battles you get in these Star Trek things. It's like, and they always figure out something at the last minute. And either it's a lot of techno babble, or it's like something they do with existing technology, the, the tools that they normally have, and they just use it in a novel new way, or it's just totally kind of lame. So we'll see what this one's like. All right, you want to jump into it? Okay, this is uh, issue 61. Brothers in Darkness is the title. And the writer is Michael Jan Friedman, penciler Daryl Skelton, colorist is Rick Taylor, letterer Bob Pinaha, editor Margaret Clark. The cover shows a nasty-looking Chalnoth male shaking his clenched fist and looking down on the Enterprise D, who is facing off against four Chalnoth ships in pitched battle. The upper portion of the cover text reads, Brothers in Darkness... Picard is at the con, thinking about the bad choices before him. Leave the system and save the ship, and most of her crew, which would strand members of his away team who are searching for the crew of the Federation vessel Aquitaine. Or stay and continue to fight, with shields almost gone and four Chalnoth ships still operational and attacking. He recalls his last battle with the Chalnoth. He faced hopeless odds then, too, but won in the end by playing... David to the Chalnoth's Goliath. In the end, he did win, but can he somehow apply the same strategy to this situation? Meanwhile, in a dark, deep cave, Riker and his away team are dealing with a powerful and curious insectoid creature that has the Aquitaine crew and many Chalnoth imprisoned or perhaps protected in green cocoons. Riker intends to release the trapped people, but not without a plan. The Chalnoths 
last attempt at this by brute force lost two more of their party to the creature's cocoons. Data suggests that when they attempt to free someone, that they not fire at the creature, but fire at the cocooning material that she spews out of her mouth. That way they can complete their task without becoming trapped themselves. Riker likes the idea. Data's speed and strength allows him to free a Chalnoth commander. Riker is able to free a member of the Aquitaine's crew with the help of Deanna and Dr. Crusher's phaser fire that destroyed the webbing before the creature could capture Riker. The Chalnoth commander awakens and tells them of following sensor readings into the cave where the creature had caught them by surprise with its size and energy bolts it threw at them. They returned fire and injured it. Their disruptor fire must have scrambled the creature's brain because it started to destroy its own eggs after that and started cocooning the Chalnoth. It seemed to confuse its own eggs as the enemy and the Chalnoth as her children. Later when the Federation team arrived they attempted to free the Chalnoth also and save at least a few of the creature's eggs from destruction. They succeeded in saving the eggs by moving them into the back of the cave out of sight, but were eventually trapped themselves. Riker applauds the lieutenant for her good work, but the Chalnoth commander scoffs and says they should have destroyed the eggs after they killed the creature. He orders the other Chalnoth to take down Jordi and Takamura and get their weapons. They fire on the creature with the Federation weapons but they are locked on stun, so the Chalnoth get frustrated. Then Riker and the away team are able to overcome the Chalnoth and retrieve their phasers. Though Geordi is okay, enough to join the fight, Takamura was not. Dr. Crusher reports she is seriously injured. They need to get her back to the ship, or she may die, but they cannot beam her out from the cave, and moving her would be life-threatening. The cocooned lieutenant says she had a gash on her cheek when she went into the cocoon, but now it's gone. The cocoon material must have some kind of recuperative powers. They decide to put Takamura into one of the cocoons and let her heal. Meanwhile, the battle rages high in orbit. The Enterprise has lost her shields and is starting to take hull damage from the four Chalnoth ships. Picard has an idea. He baits the three Chalnoth ships with propulsion to follow them past the fourth ship whose engines they disabled earlier in the battle. When all the ships get close enough to the disabled Chalnoth ship, Picard orders tractor beams to lock onto the disabled vessel and they hurl it at the other three pursuing ships. The disabled ship hits two of the pursuing ships and is able to disable them too. It's down to one Chalnoth ship that is still operational, a much more even fight. They will be able to stay and attempt to rescue the away team. Hurrah! Meanwhile in the cave, Data and Riker set Takamura down on the ground in front of the creature who obliges by sliming Takamura's injured body in a healing cocoon. Back on the ship, Picard is speaking to Geordi, who, re who reports the landing party's success. Picard communicates with the Chalnoth commander who blusters about more ships being on the way and how Picard will pay for his arrogance. Picard proposes that there is nothing left to fight over since the landing party has located and freed the Chalnoths imprisoned in the cave. He offers to produce one of the freed Chalnoths in, in proof in five minutes when the Chalnoth sensors can detect him on the surface. The Chalnoth Commander accepts the proposal, and Picard orders Geordi to make it so. Five minutes later, the Chalnoth commander identifies his soldier on the surface and beams him aboard. The commander tells Picard he has made good on his promise, and so he and the Aquitaine are free to leave Chalnoth space unmolested after the rest of his people are returned. So now they have a deal, but Picard questions the Chalnoth claim to this area of space. In the cave, the away team frees the remaining cocooned crewmen unmolested. Dr. Crusher was able to knock the beast out with sedatives beamed down from the ship. They remove Takamura from her cocoon, significantly healed. Dr. Crusher attempts to do surgery on the creature 
to undo the shock that turned her on her own eggs. Later, the brain surgery on the creature is pronounced a success, and she should go back to nurturing her young rather than destroying them. The Chalnoth are licking their wounds. The Enterprise is well on its way to repairing the battle damage. Beverly suggests that maybe Picard should negotiate the dispute with the Chalnoth over ownership of this system. Picard declines, saying that he does not think he would be lucky enough to survive a third run-in with the Chalnoth. The end. Was Chalnoth honorable yet pains in the butt? <laughs> pains in the butt, uh, aggressive, territorial, um, expansionist, and they must have uh, must spend a lot of time on their teeth because their teeth are huge. Especially those four coming out of the bottom of their jaw. Right. So you're worried about their dental hygiene? I think so. How do you keep those so sparkly and sharp? Exactly. Right. Anyway, yes, they're they're an interesting race. Hmm. Yeah, I, my only complaint is that they're a little too much like Klingons. Hmm. That's true. Because, <laughs> I mean, even, even down to the they're very honorable, even right. though they're... Just so they're so aggressive, and Picard just knows that they'll keep keep with their uh, promises because of their their honor, and it sounds a lot like the Klingons. Yeah, they do. Luckily, their technology is not quite up to the Federation's. Whose is? Ah, good question. Good question. Anyways. Uh, overall, not a bad issue. Uh, I mean, the alien creature, the bug, seems more out of Star Wars than Star Trek, but not bad. Yeah, yeah, the alien creature had some interesting characteristics to her, uh, assuming it's a her. And and luckily, those characteristics just fit well into the story. <laughs> so, convenient healing trance, you mean? Oh, exactly. And conveniently uh, scrambled in the mind so that she starts attacking her own eggs. It's like, well, that's convenient. And horrible. Yes. Yes. I do like the little comment that Picard was the one that said that he wouldn't want to be there when the mom figured out what happened or what she lost or something like that. Oh, figures out that she was killing her own young? Yeah, makes some sort of comment. And it had a picture of the alien creature and Tamora. It was like a side-by-side shot. Right, Um, right. As a matter of myself, I rather like the idea of bringing a parent and prodigy back together. Okay. I just wouldn't want to have lingered to observe the fruits of my labor, which is obviously she's she's saying that she didn't want to watch the creature mourn over all the eggs that that she had to kill, right? Or Picard, I think or Picard's get, or, saying that. Yeah, or get attacked. And what what's the thing about the lasers coming out of her face? Did I miss something in the first issue? Yeah, lasers? where it was where the the Charloth we're talking about. Energy yeah. beams? Energy beams coming yeah, out. Yeah, I don't know. I was I was a little confused too because she never uses them again. No. Well, apparently she she well, considers she must everybody have used her them young. On the eggs. But... Oh. Because we we well, never see her actually trying to kill anything. No. We only see her trying to quote unquote protect. So exactly. Maybe when she was in defense mode instead of loving mode, she shoots lasers. <laughs> <laughs> Out of her forehead, lasers. I don't, you know, that that seems a little ridiculous. I mean, that's fine. That's fine. It, it gives the channel off more of a reason to attack and scramble her brains. But come on, lasers. What? Come on. Anyway. Yeah. Energy beams coming out of a biological life form. I mean, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It just seems unlikely. It happens. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> you've you've and, never and heard of the be? electric eel? Electric eel. Well, through water. That's contact. So, and plus, we generate electricity in our own bodies, as we found out in the Matrix. But it's like <laughs> energy beams. Come on, I don't know. No, Through I'm air, you know how hard that is to do. Anyway, whatever. I'm with you. I, the 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 creature had some very convenient characteristics to it. Anyway, right. Whatever. So, was the creature like some sort of worm-like? Um in its lower body because did it ever show its legs uh, I don't remember seeing its legs but for those of you without the comic uh, it is a very long almost 
its body almost is kind of like kind of sort of like like maybe snake like or something but it's got hair all over it and it's insectoid so, I mean it has compound eyes and stuff and mandibles and it's a weird thing well that, not only that, does it have mandibles it has that like little sucker thing like a fly does right uh, for a mouth or I guess right. it's a mouth it's what it seems to produce the uh, the spooge out of but whatever. Spooge. <laughs> Spooge. And it's yes. got little horns and stuff on its head. Very so it, it kind of crosses um species kind of characteristics. Anyway, it's creative. I'll give it that. Right. Interesting look. Yes. Very big. Very big. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting when uh Worf was making his report about the success of the uh, Picard maneuver and reporting about the many casualties and then uh, on the three disabled ships, Chelnaw ships Mm -hmm. and then he makes a big deal about there being no loss of life right? and it's like okay fine, whatever, the Federation are the good guys and in the end Picard has to be able to win this this commander over and it might be harder if he killed a, a, a bunch of Chelnaw but it's like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, after throwing, you know, throwing a ship around, which I don't want to talk about how likely any of this is, but after throwing one ship into two other ships, you know, and nobody's nobody died, uh, but a bunch of people are hit, are hurt. I don't know. I don't know what the odds are that. But get a, get past all that. How the heck would he know there's no deaths? I mean, how would Worf know that? The magic sensors? I mean, I mean, did, did he switch the sensors to cadaver mode or something? Well, he had a census of the number of live exactly. people on it before the maneuver, exactly. and then he, you know, cross-referenced that with the exactly. live people after the maneuver and found out they were the same. Being a logical person, that's what I came up with, also as the only possible explanation. <laughs> yeah, I had I had to do the same thing. I was just like, what? <laughs> So uh, I want everybody to remember this conversation because here the sensors are knocking it out of the park. (laughs) Uh, A little bit later, we're going to have some not quite so sophisticated uh, sensors that cause what I guess is supposed to be a surprise later, but it's just stupid. Okay. So So just remember that. Remember that. I don't like the way Picard is depicted as babyface through a lot of this. Oh, you mean the the drawing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not crazy about it. And it comes back. I, it's not the same. It's not skeleton, but the, in the third issue, I think it's the third issue. It's a sim, similar kind of thing. I mean, it's very the, the style of of drawing. I do agree. He's very pale. <laughs> He's very light on detail, facial detail. Uh, which makes him look baby-faced, yeah. Right, and yeah, I guess that's what it is. Just right. so smooth. Smooth as a baby's bum. <laughs> right. And then my last comment that I have for the whole book, it, it again has to do with the magic trance thing. You cocoon somebody in in this liquid, and, and somehow that's able to breathe for them and feed them and all this other stuff. There's just too many biological questions that that uh, I just can't buy. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, I could I, buy that the uh, the gel would, would speed up healing time. Really? Why? I don't know. Why not? Biologically, they must be very different. I mean, the, the creature and its young and humans. Yeah, but I mean, we put, we find plant life and things like that here on Earth that speed up things, so why not some other type of alien jelly or whatever that would speed it up even further? Uh, maybe that that part I'm okay with. I'm just I don't have a I have a problem that she still has to breathe. She her body's not going to go into stasis or whatever just because it's inside this goo. So right needs to breathe. She needs to eat. She needs to drink. Yeah. She needs to do other biological stuff that you just can't do inside of a little cocoon. Yeah, and if it was a uh, uh a firm cocoon that, you know, had holes in it, you know, just by nature of it being a thready kind of material, then then that's fine. You could probably breathe. But if it truly is still jelly inside of the the harder external shell, mm-hmm. then good question. 
How does it? How do they breathe? And of course, no matter what, how do they eat? Because some of the people that have been cocooned from the Aquitaine and the uh, Chalnaw ship have probably been cocooned for a while. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So that was water. That, I, I, like I said, I could buy the the speeding up properties, and I could even buy that the the alien would, you know, the mine scrambler. I even okay with that part. It was you are. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a necessary evil. It had to be... I mean, they had to have something in the plot yeah, I, to make it do it, so... Yeah, I, I I agree that it was convenient for the plot. Right. So, yeah. I, I'm I'm giving them a pass on that one. I just... I okay. have a problem with the other thing. It's the food and water angle that's the worst. Okay. And, and breathing. breathing. Breathing's okay. probably the one that would kill you first. Probably. <laughs> probably. Anyways... Well, I was one. I, I thought it kind of convenient that uh, phasers on stun won't make the creature unconscious, but somehow you're able to pump in a bunch of tranquilizer without getting spooged. <laughs> well, they had dark vents. <laughs> Apparently. You think she was running up there with the hypo? I don't know. It would have been some pretty big hypos. That thing's big. Yes. And didn't she say something about it took more tranquilizer than she thought it would or yeah, something? Yeah, it took more than she thought it would. Right. So at least they didn't waste our time with going through the details of how they were able to inject it with tranquilizer. That's fine that you don't want to – that's fine that you can skip that. It's just another – I just wondered. Yeah, whatever. I guess right. the creature's phaser-resistant even on stun, but chemicals, no. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, right. Good point. Yeah, and my last comment on this one is the same as that you said about uh, about Picard. Um, baby faced. Baby faced. So the drawings are so simple and understated that it looks that they look like six year olds, and Picard was the worst on the top of page nineteen, I think. That might have been the one I was looking at too. Yeah. Especially when they did the. Uh, oh. Yeah, no, that's not the one I was looking at. Uh, the one I was looking at more was when they do the extreme close-up. But the one on page 19, yes, he's sitting there, looks like a little baby, a baby head on a body. <laughs> baby head. <laughs> baby Picard head. <laughs> yes. All right. Anything else? Uh, No. That's it. All right, let's keep this moving along. So uh, issue 62 came out August of 1994 and is entitled The Victim. And I think the staff might be a little different, so I'll just run through it real quick. So the uh, writer was Michael Jane Friedman. Penciler is Rachel Ketchum. Inker is Rick Burchett. Letterer Bob Panaha. Colorist Rick Taylor. And editor is Margaret Clark. So the cover shows Troy in her blue uniform though she's missing a communicator pin. Uh, she's running towards the reader and looking behind her. And then in the background, we have the head and body of a bare-chested, huge, hulking yellow alien. Uh, the alien has some sort of prosthetic on his head that kind of makes it bulge out. Uh, the forehead bulges out, and then the top has this weird divot in it. And uh, he has, like, a diamond or some sort of diamond-shaped thing on his forehead. He's also toting a large yet simple-designed handgun of some sort. So this is going to be brief, unfortunately, because not a lot happens. But uh, the story starts off with Troy and an alien similar to the one on the cover. Maybe not quite as big. Uh, she's groggy and not sure where she is. Uh, she's dressed the same way she was on the cover. Uh, she's in her uniform without the badge. Uh, the huge alien from the cover arrives and tells them that he's going to kill them both. He then points to the other people he killed, and we see Riker and Crusher dead on the ground with smoking holes in their bodies uh, laying before a fountain of some sort. The evil alien shoots the the alien that was helping Troy earlier. And then the chase is on as Troy is running from the gloating madman. She is running through corridors and empty courtyards, and always the alien seems to be right behind her, taking pot shots at her and gloating about how he's going to kill her and how he's killed everybody else. 
She eventually stumbles upon Worf's body. He has a phaser next to him, and she takes it. When the alien arrives, she thinks she's going to use it in self-defense. But she cannot bring herself to do this, though, and pleads with him to stop. He does not, and he shoots her. Troy wakes up in a hospital bed. Picard, Crusher, Worf, and Riker are all there. Picard tells her that she was part of a murder investigation. The hulking brute from her dream was murdered, and she and his subordinate were the two suspects. They were both put through the same test, where they mentally they were put into a position where they would have the means and the reason to kill the man. If they did it in their dreams, then that would prove that they could do it in real life. Uh, the subordinate ended up killing the man in his dream, and then when he woke up, he admitted to doing it in real life. So through exposition, we find out that the Enterprise was there as part of some sort of delegation with this alien civilization. And then while they were there at this big party, the, the one guy got killed. So after all that exposition is done, later, back on the ship, the Enterprise meets with the alien host of the party. They uh, state that they hope that this does not put a strain on the relationship between the two governments. The leader assures them that it will not and reminds them that they are no stranger to violence since they had to build the dream trial device for some reason. The end. Short and sweet. Which is fine. There was uh, not all that much detail to relate. That was that was uh, incredibly important. So It was like an old-style Doctor Who episode. Running through corridors. <laughs> Just running and running and running for, you know, pretty much 20 pages of the book. <laughs> right. I, I liked it because it was a traditional kind of man-versus-man theme. Although, in this case, obviously, a lady. Troy. And mm-hmm. also, it put Troy in a position to be to do a kill-or-be-killed situation, which is something we don't normally see Troy in, right. especially not alone. Right. Action kind of things like this, you tend to see more the guys involved in. Um, so, the, the, the dare I say the wimpiest character, with, with all due respect, gets put in a situation like this. I thought that was kind of interesting. And this guy was really nasty. He was nasty. The, I mean, he was really... I actually kind of enjoyed... I, I think I think Friedman was having some fun with how nasty he was making him. <laughs> with, some of, with some of the dialogue. It kind of makes you wonder if he really was that nasty or if this was just the way he was being depicted in the, uh, the dream or whatever. Um, I think to some degree it was how it was done in the dream because you, you'd want this be, this person to be such an abomination uh, that that you you would want as much as possible the the per, the person being chased to have no problem with killing them. Right. You know the kind of person that obviously will kill again. So you're almost doing the universe a favor, and not not to mention yourself to. Uh, to take him out. Right. But he obviously was nasty. Otherwise, the... I mean, I think they imply that the subordinate... That was the reason why the subordinate killed him to begin with. Right. That's not a nice person. I liked it. I thought this was a... a, It was short, but you don't necessarily need a overtly long, complicated story to be good. No. Although they did go... I think the second half of the book got a little complicated, and... Um, and, and so basically the second half of the book I found to be uh, kind of throwaway it was really only the first half that interested me and when you say second half you mean the last four pages mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, true <laughs> so at the beginning where it's the conflict the running like as you say through halls and, uh, and Troy's decision not to kill him that part I liked it was the right. explanation of how Deanna got into a situation like that with Worf, Riker, and Crusher all dead. Um, you know, ma- making all that make sense. That, eh, yeah, I wasn't that worried about that second, the, the last four pages. Right. No, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. Uh, you know, and it was another way of. I, I liked the last four pages only in that it, 
it gave another culture's way of proving guilt. Uh, mm. Although, mm. you know, just because you're able to kill somebody in your dream, I don't think that necessarily proves that you're a murderer. Right. But they did kind of even hit on that that says, you know, this was only going to be step one of their mental trials. Ah. Uh, but but right. fortunately, the uh, the real murderer fessed up to it after the first session, so sure. she wouldn't have to go through any more. But uh, I, I thought that was kind of interesting, um, an interesting way of doing it. I mean, right. And I think that's good because uh, it's good that there would be multiple trials because there were things that were going on in the, in, in the first trial where Deanna was going through this, which were just didn't all add up. It seemed a bit unreal. So I think with enough time, she would have figured out uh, that this is not real and maybe not played along. Right. If that happened once, then, well, you can always try again because Deanna at the beginning says, how did I get here? I don't remember how I got here. So if you don't have a memory between trials, then you can keep on trying it until you... uh, Right. Yeah, just changing up the scenario enough. Right. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I, I found it interesting that, and maybe just because she had more time, but Deanna was crying over Worf's dead body. But she did, wasn't doing a lot of crying when she saw Riker, Riker in particular, and uh, and Crusher's dead bodies. Right. Well, I think this is based shortly before or after All Good Things, so mm-hmm. they would be an item at this point. Aha. Uh-huh. Which would make more sense. Uh, of course, yeah. Of course, she was an item with Riker, too. And she was still getting used to the idea of this guy pointing the gun at her. But uh, I, I just thought it was interesting. Right. Another thing I thought was interesting, that towards the end of the comic, the aliens started all having these white chin beards. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I guess that was just to show the... the. Well, it was different aliens, weren't they? Different aliens. That, that right. That's what makes it even more interesting, the choice that Rachel made the artist. So all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> these different alien races all had these little little goatee, little little billy goat white beards on, on their chins. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, because they were, they were the ones that was actually doing the um, the test where the murderer and the, the guy that was murdered were both from a different alien race that was visiting this, this party or whatever, the same as the Federation was. Well, yeah, but okay. So the murderer had a little white chin beard. He's fr- he's a Thrakite. Thrakite, I think. Was he? Right. Yeah. The murderer was. The murderer. Look at him. Oh yeah, yeah. You're right. He does. Yeah, he has one too. Okay, and, never mind. And then the and then one of the alien race guys, the guys that are hosting and doing all this uh, this dream stuff. One of those guys have a little white chin beard too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. So that was kind of a. Interesting. She must have had a little thing for white chin beards as she was drawing this. Now let's put one on him too. <laughs> so you think she just she just finds that attractive and well, I don't know about attractive. Uh, I, I didn't mean it from an attractive standpoint. Oh, because I said a thing for. Oh, right. I can see that. Yeah. yeah, no, I don't mean that. Yeah, mm. uh, she just liked the chin beards. Oh. She likes the chin beards. <laughs> she's, a chin, she's a chin beard lady. Uh, that's funny. Uh, so what do you think about how the Thrakites were drawn? They they look like Lou Ferrigno did in The yeah. Incredible Hulk, I thought. <laughs> uh, but extreme. But more extreme, right. Yeah, just they, they, the, they, the nose, the forehead kind of protruding out a little bit. And, oh, and okay. the face, I really thought that that guy on the cover looked like Lou Ferrigno, but with a diamond thing in his forehead. Right. But... Uh, but I thought it was cool. I kind of liked when it showed them later and you saw the, the the neck and the back of their heads. I thought it was kind of an interesting design. I think the design of the alien uh, was very good for a threatening uh, character. A life-threatening, nasty, violent character. Uh, if you don't have the comic book, they've got muscles and cartilage that basically go from the shoulders up to the middle of the head and it kind of fills in that whole area where you'd see you know your neck so it looks like it's not a football player with no neck this guy's like got way big neck and a little bit like a Card- a little like a Cardassian only yep. more so right 
also yeah, I was there was getting the Cardassian vibe off of them. Right. Uh, there was also a movie called The Keep, a long time ago. It starred Scott Glenn. Uh, Michael Mann apparently directed it, which was interesting early in his career. And because um, I, I looked all that up, I didn't I didn't know all that. But this is a movie I saw ages ago. It's 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 an older movie, maybe the 70s or 80s, probably the 80s. And what Scott Glenn turns into being like a, a protector kind of thing at the end looks kind of like him. Huh. Like a big thick neck and all that kind of stuff. Obviously makeup being involved, prosthetics. Right. But uh, that that also Cardassians and this guy from this this movie to keep. Huh. I, I never heard that. of it. So it's a it's a sci-fi movie, I assume. It's not as much sci-fi as it is um, kind of like horror. Okay. Like so a- Nazis break into a keep. Oh, okay. You know, a castle kind of thing. Oh. And they okay. take it over to do to to do their nefarious things, and they end up. Un- unleashing a uh, like a demon or something that starts killing the uh, Nazis. Oh. And then the Scott Glenn has to come to re-imprison the thing. So, and Scott Glenn looks like a normal guy until the end, where he turns into something else. Anyway. Hmm. I was thinking Alien Nation, because when the aliens nah. take that super juice to make them stronger, uh, they kind of bulk kind of look like, like this. There's another example. There you go. Cool. Okay. All right. What else you got? I have issue number 63. All right. Let's I, don't have, I don't have anything else to say about 62. Me either. Let's go. Okay. So, issue number 63 is titled A Matter of Conscience. Published date, September 1994. Writer is Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler is Daryl Skelton. Colorist, Rick Taylor. Letterer, Bob Panaha. Editor, Margaret Clark. The cover shows Picard looking on as Dr. Crusher is kneeling over an unconscious Vulcan or Romulan male, examining him with her tricorder. Blocky blue text in the upper right-hand corner reads, Deadly Dilemma. The story opens with the Enterprise-D approaching the Romulan neutral zone, where they will begin a standard patrol. Picard comments to Riker that the Romulans have been relatively well-behaved lately. However, it's always good to be wary of them, considering how little the Federation still knows about the Romulans after 200 years of contact. Geordi requests and is granted use of a runabout and a team to survey nearby Beta Argotha, also known as Darwin's World. The standing order to survey the planet as often as practical is in place due to its rapid pace of evolutionary development which is, of course, why Geordi's curious about it and wants to see it himself. And, of course, that's also why Picard gives his approval. Deanna talks Geordi into taking her on the mission since her father was on the first survey team dispatched to the planet long ago. After departure from the Enterprise, three other members of the survey team get to know one another. The very young Mr. Haspen is the new kid on the block who gets to know the two old hands. Smithers and Henry Gillette, who are both close to retirement. There is much for the young Ensign to learn from these guys. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, they come upon a derelict Cardassian ship with heavy damage. They beam over the only existing life sign on the ship, which turns out to be an injured Romulan, who collapses quickly after the transport is complete. Later in sickbay, Dr. Crusher gives the Romulan a clean bill of health, he wakes up asking to speak to Picard. In Picard's ready room, the Romulan introduces himself as Tavorok. He says he was a leading scientist for the Romulan Empire. He was working on a project that would destabilize the Federation and allow his empire to expand unopposed. He was asked to work on a virus that would eat away dilithium crystals. Since Federation ships' matter-antimatter reactors are dependent on dilithium crystals to channel the immense power reaction into a useful form, Federation ships would be quickly disabled once exposed to the virus. Since Romulan ships run on a captive singularity power source, their fleet would be unaffected even if they were to mistakenly become exposed to the virus. He is a moderate Romulan, and as such saw no future in destroying the Federation for a pointless goal of expanding the Empire. 
Being a famous and wealthy citizen due to his past achievements, he had no choice but to try to leave Romulan space. He hired a Cardassian ship to get him to the border, but when they discovered who he was, they wanted him to continue his dilithium-eating virus work. Luckily, an accident on the ship disabled it and left him the sole survivor. He thought he would join the Cardassian captures in death, but that's when the Enterprise came onto the scene. As the storytelling completes, the captain is informed a Cardassian warship is approaching and hailing them. Gul Arak of the good ship Kaliv asks after the disabled Cardassian ship and any survivors in particular any Romulan survivors. Picard confirms they picked up a Romulan survivor. Arak demands the return of Tavorak immediately claiming he has committed grievous crimes against Cardassia. He and the other Cardassian ships will accept nothing less than the immediate return of the criminal to face Cardassian justice. Picard declines his request until he is told more about Tavarak's supposed crimes. Eric terminates the connection. Meanwhile, Geordi and his team make their way through the Argotha system and marvel at its twin star system. They note the accretion bridge between the two suns has grown larger since the last survey and they agree to keep an eye on it as they approach Beta Aragotha and start the landing sequence. As they descend, they are hit by a magnetic field distortion. Control is lost and they crash land on the planet. As they exit the ship and assess the damage, it looks like there's no hull breaches, which is a good thing. They quickly discover a second Federation runabout crashed near theirs, but with more extensive damage. They state no other survey team was recorded as missing. They eventually make the startling discovery the ship's name is the same as theirs, the Yucatan. They don't know how this can be, unless a ship's registry error was made. All names are supposed to be unique. The ship has power, but its log is all but gone. They move outside and see movement. There is someone out there. With phasers drawn, they come upon a group of people that look like they have Starfleet uniforms on. No, not quite. Com badges are different. Other differences, too. But Geordi is shocked to see himself but with a full beard and surrounded by mostly a different away team. To be continued. Interesting. How could that happen? I liked the different com badge. Yes. And Geordi's, the other Geordi's uniform is red instead of gold. Yes, he's wearing the red and his com badge is the one that has the swoosh uh, on top of three vertical bars. Yes, and where did we see that before? Uh, we've seen it several times. Yes. Um, usually the bars represent the number of pips that they have, so he has three bars, so that makes him a commander. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, if you were a captain, you'd have four bars underneath mm-hmm. the swoosh. But uh, but that's not always the case. Um, we've seen it in Parallels, and we've seen it in a few episodes of Voyager, where it's like showing the future. Um, mm-hmm. They showed that those were the com badges they, they were wearing. Uh, when else were you thinking you saw it? It was mainly the Parallels one. Okay. But uh, uh, two, I, I thought I had seen it in other places used also. I just didn't know what they all were. Yeah. Ironically enough, the one I'm thinking of is in Voyager was Voyager makes it home, and Geordi is now captain of a Galaxy-class ship, and, and he had that combat. Oh. Um, and then they they end up having to go back and undo some of the future so that... Uh, a lot of the folks on Enterprise or Voyager wouldn't die in their last little attempt to get home. Uh, so that future may not ever happen, but it doesn't really make sense since, uh, you know, just because Voyager didn't make it home, does that mean Geordi won't ever be captain of a starship? Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. But anyways, long story short, he had that match. <laughs> cool. But uh, anyway, so I'm really kind of excited to see this next issue uh, to see if if it's uh, indeed a parallel universe uh, landing party. Right, which it does appear to be. Um, You know, (laughs) Jordy has a beard. The other Jordy has a beard. It must be, it must be a parallel dimension thing. But whatever. Right. Um, Well, 
I saw the cover of the next issue, and it had two Geordies face-to-face, one with a beard, one with not. Mm-hmm. So I knew that's where they were ultimately going to be going. Um, right. But when I'm reading this book, and then they find the other runabout, and it looks worse off than, than theirs, I'm thinking, oh, this is some sort of time displacement that that somehow it's split into two or evolved into two different uh, runabouts, and that the... Um, the first run about the one that was worse off was the real Jordy, and then this would be um, a somehow the planet evolved a new version of the runabout and a new version of the away team. Oh, uh, that's where I thought they theory. were going with it because they kept stressing the whole Darwin planet angle. Right, but uh, that doesn't ma- that wouldn't make sense with the different com badges and no. different crew members. Right. Yeah, I I think it's more likely it's a uh, it's a mirror universe kind of thing, and somehow the uh, through the through the very convenient uh, what what is it was it uh, it wasn't time distortion, but whatever was going on outside the planet that caused them to crash land, whatever that thing was, I thought oh it must be some kind of a bridge between two dimensions, and you know that either. Jordy and our team went over to their dimension, or the mirror universe bearded Jordy and his team came over from their dimension, and somehow they crossed over. Okay. Uh, and the, and just in their dimension, they happened to crash a little ahead of our dimensions, uh, uh, folks. Right. Um, yeah. But a- after after reading the last page, that's that's what I think. I think okay. that's probably going to be the case. I was right. just telling you what what my speculations were. Oh, got, bef- right. Gotcha. Okay. Because uh, I was really thinking of the episode, Deep Space Nine episode, um, Children of Time. Okay. Uh, we've talked about it before. Oh, right, right. Uh, where the crew crash land on a planet that's filled with the descendants of themselves. So mm-hmm. they meet, you know, like O'Brien and Kira, or not O'Brien and Kira, but O'Brien and uh, Dax's children's children kind of thing. and. Mm-hmm. Odo's the only one that's still alive from the original crash, and and he's telling them that you know, when they try to leave the planet, they somehow get sucked back into time, and they crash land and and end up raising you know end up having families and stuff and, and creating this community. Um, I thought that's where they were going with it, and and um, especially when I saw the two different uh, runabouts, one you know worse off than the other. I thought, well, maybe they were going to do something like that. But, who knows? Right. But, again, just interesting, the parallels to that, that one episode, Children of Time. That's that's a great episode. You need to watch it, if you don't remember it that well. I don't remember it that well. I think it was season four, maybe five, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to take one tangent after another tangent, but since your tangent episode of Deep Space Nine talked about them meeting their own descendants or something. I just want to mention quickly that towards the end of the all-too-shorter run of Stargate Universe TV show, something similar like that happened. Uh, They end up, some of the people that are on the Destiny, end up coming to a planet where their own descendants are there. So. uh, Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Somebody's been copying other people's work. I think that's quite possible. Quite possible. Um, But... I just thought I'd mention that. That was Stargate Universe, the the basically Stargate the Universe. the Stargate Voyager. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I never even bothered to give that one a shot because it just seemed too much like Voyager. Uh, yeah, yeah, it it, it was it it was what uh, derivative <laughs> of 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 other uh, art forms, yes. And they had oh, a Stargate yeah. on the ship itself. Oh yeah. Is that common? I thought Stargates had to be on planets. No, that well, there star there have been Stargates on the bad guys' ships mm. uh, in, during Stargate SG One, and um, no, you can have Stargates on ships. It's not okay. all that common, but you can do that. That just proves my ignorance of Stargate. Oh, I apologize. Well, something weird about the whole Stargate thing is. They got Stargates sitting on planets with no visible power sources, and they got these these Stargates sitting in the middle of anywhere, no, you know, nowhere, an unpopulated planet. And it's like, how is that thing still operational? Anyway, whatever. I always thought the Stargate was 
now I've only seen very little Stargate, so forgive me again. But I always kind of thought it was more of like a City of the Edge of Forever, where it was just this ancient technology that didn't require a lot of external power, if any, that it was somehow all internal. Well, that's that's the way it turns out, right? Although in the original in the original movie and in the early uh, TV series SG One, they make a big deal about how much power it draws. Mm. You know, from the power grid, the you know the the Colorado power grid. So it's not consistent, but but you're right, yes. But the, you know, the, this is not the Guardian. It doesn't take you through time. Right. Um, no, it just, it jumps, just, you from just place jumps you from place to place. Right. All right. A fine series if you have the if you have the time for it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Although I came into it kind of late, it was I think it was in like maybe the second or third season of SG One before I got into it. Well, that doesn't seem late because if I wanted to get into it, I would be you would be really you know, late. Ten seasons behind <laughs> on that, six seasons behind on Atlantis, six seasons behind on this one. Yeah, <laughs> they, well, uh, this one only lasted. Yeah, yeah, Universe only lasted uh, one season, and and not even two full seasons. Right, but all right, and really, it was the weakest of all of them. But still, it, you know, it had some value. Right, well, kind of anyway. like, uh, like, like Enterprise. Maybe it yeah. ended before its time. Mm, right when it was true. hitting its stride. Exactly. So, but if you are going to spend your time, you should see SG or SG One. That's, right. that's the best one to do. What right. else do you have on this issue? On this one, coming back to our main point, uh, I thought it was cool that they they used a runabout. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I mean, I know that there was at least one Next Generation episode where uh, where runabouts were used. I think Picard and and Deanna were coming back in a runabout to the ship in one right. episode. But yep. I don't remember ever seeing uh, runabouts typically being on the Enterprise. And and personally, I think that makes so so much sense. I mean, the Enterprise is a huge ship, Enterprise D, huge ship. They should have plenty of room. Use runabouts instead of those dinky, inky, dinky little shuttles they were using for most of the series. Right. Yeah, no, there, there was a few episodes towards the end where they used the runabouts. Um, okay, well, I remember one, but... I right, I think, one. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't until Deep Space Nine started that they started introducing them. On uh, Next Gen. Right. Right. But I, th- I think they kind of phased out the little tiny shuttle with the runabouts there towards the end. Oh, okay. Well, that's good because it makes sense. I mean, if you're going to go uh, shooting around, especially if you're not just going to go from the ship to a planet, you know, right. you know, the, the ship's in orbit, you got to go down to the planet. Uh, heck yes, I'd rather run about. What was cool about the runabout was that supposedly it was modular, so you could take out the the middle, the section. middle section and put in whatever type of equipment you wanted. So you could, if you were going to do more of, you know. Uh, vegetation type experiments you would have a lab for that if you were going to do right. more of uh, something else you would just replace that that middle section and where they copy uh, that from I don't know that just seems practical space 1999 is that right oh yeah the eagles had the same kind of thing only you could really see where there was a center module and the propulsion and the pilot area was joined by a a, a metal kind of almost like a ladder kind of lattice work between the, the propulsion section and the pilot section in the middle you could see there's a replaceable uh, module in the middle oh cool I never watched that show well that was on a long time ago youngin <laughs> I've seen the comic books by Gold Key oh my I've, god really I've never read one <laughs> okay well it's a good idea why not reuse it alright what else you got? Because I'm I'm done. Uh, you know, I really don't have that much. Uh, I, I do like how there's two really meaty storylines going here. I mean, a lot of times you have the main storyline, and then you'll have another kind of subservient, kind of lighter storyline going. So I'm used to that. But you know, this issue definitely is one of the uh, less common issues I think that have two significant storylines going. Right. Yeah. Although. The Cardassian one, not as interesting to me as the, the planet one. Uh, I agree. I'm more interested in this one. But I do th- I do have theories about the uh, this Romulan scientist. Right. And I guess I should make make uh, make good on my promise earlier. 
So for everybody who was remembering that, I told you to remember the sensor, the sensor oh, yes. uh, inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the issue. They beam over somebody from a Cardassian ship and are all surprised that he's not Cardassian. When earlier, <laughs> and we've seen many, many times that you can scan and like, oh, it's a Vulcanoid or, sure. you know, you know exactly what type of race it is. And you think you would need to do that if you were going to beam somebody over. Uh, I do wow. find it funny that, that they have this big reveal. He's not a Cardassian. Cardassian, right. When on the cover it shows that he's clearly not a Cardassian. So sure. <laughs> it was like, I didn't understand why you were trying to build it up as this big reveal when it was anything but a big reveal. Right. And it didn't even make sense as to why it should be a reveal. Worf should have known right away. He's a Romulan. Or at least a Vulcanoid. Right. So, and they are in the neutral zone, or near the neutral zone. So, right. you know, if it isn't going to be a Cardassian, the next most logical would be a Romulan. But, mm-hmm. yep, yep, they did make a big reveal out of that. Yeah, and it was, it's inconsistent. Yeah. And I personally, where I think this is going to go, and I haven't read the other issue, but, or issues, I guess it's, there's one more? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe two. Uh, I think this guy is not Mr. Nice Guy. I think when you think about the idea of a dilithium-eating virus, which, by the way, that would be a nasty thing for the Federation. Uh, so good, good idea, Romulan mm-hmm. nasty people. How would you actually introduce that? That wouldn't be that easy. You'd need a spy or something. I mean, because how would you get that weapon past the shields, past the hull, onto the dilithium crystals? You'd have to get into the ship. I think, right. unless they figured out some other kind of delivery method that that that's not well. He says to me. he says that it'll be delivered in. Uh, he he makes some sort of reference to how it was going to be delivered, and and it was going to be something so inconspicuous that your sensors wouldn't even pick it up. Well, I know, but he that. doesn't say what, how. Well, exactly. Is well, it and, and that just Is and it? that's exactly so. That's something you would have to. I mean, sure, you'd you'd want to be able to introduce it. You wouldn't want it to be picked up on ship sensors, because isn't there some kind of biological scan thing that goes on when you transport somebody? Right. Something like that. Anyway, um, but how do you introduce it? You got to get into the ship. Well, guess who's in the ship? So. Right. I'm right. thinking that this is all subterfuge for he's got somewhere on him he's got the virus, dilithium virus. So. Right, and I was thinking that maybe he was still doing his experiments on the Cardassian ship and it kind of went went awry and that's what mm-hmm. caused it to explode. Oh, but that's a good point. your idea actually is even more evil. Well, it's more deceitful and more uh, Romulan, right? Right. More up their alley. I mean, they, they got to test it out, right? I mean, I mean, they can get dilithium crystals and then test it out that way, but they want to see if they can do it to a ship. Right. Federation right. ship. No, that's a good point. Uh, I hadn't thought of of that, but I did. Uh, like I said, I had my a separate theory, but yours makes more sense. Well, we'll see what ends up ends up being the case. So uh, I do agree. I like the uh, the mirror universe thing with Jordy and company on the planet, but mm-hmm. I think you know, as a, as a, as a runner up, I think this other thing is going to be interesting too with the Romulan doctor or scientist. Right. And I don't want to keep going with the episode. Because uh, we'll probably talk about this next next time too. But is what he says true about Romulans use captive singularity singularity as yes. their warp drive? I've never heard that before. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's yep. They've alluded that to that in, in some next gen episodes. No, that oh. no, I no, I think that's totally a, a fabrication of uh, next gen. Okay. And, um, and I think. I thought that had something to do with dictating the designs of the Romulan ships. Oh, why they have that big empty space in the middle? middle. Okay, I think you're right. I do kind of remember that now. Something like that. Even though you don't see a a captive singularity glowing or pulsing, um, you know, uh, in in that gap, I think somehow I remember something like that. It had to do with it. Well, that's going to be my homework. I'm going to look that up and find which episodes that's referenced in. Okay, cool. Do that. Thank you. I now, will. Uh, I would think that that would be really... I mean, 
I, I would think they'd be really dangerous. When you think of a matter-antimatter reactor, though, I think that sounds really dangerous, too. But um, a captured singularity? Wow. That sounds like something. <laughs> I, I, I guess it would need a containment field just like the matter-antimatter reactor on the inter- on Federation ships. Right. But still, that's just, I don't know, there's something really dangerous sounding about that. Right, which which makes them even more nasty. And glad that the supernova took them all out. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it isn't a singularity a black hole? Yes. <laughs> I mean, why wow. did they just send a bunch of their ships up to the thing and let them oh, uh, release the, the singularities? There you go. Release the singularities. Well, if if the Enterprise can release. Uh, Warp cores to get away from it, then. Yeah, I would. I would imagine the they could should have been able to sacrifice a few ships for the, the whole empire. There you go. That's there funny. There you go. All right. Anything else, sir? No. Nothing All else. right. So for the expanded universe, we usually go over next generation episodes that were coming out uh, during these times, and there are none because. Season 7 had wrapped up, and we were uh, waiting for Generations to come out. Sniff, sniff. Sad. Yeah. So, nothing but to talk it, about there? I, I, I think they were running out of out of steam, though, towards the end. So, maybe it went out at the right time. Oh, don't tell my wife that. She will oh. hate you for the rest of your life. Well, okay, don't tell her <laughs> then. She, she thinks that she hates Rick Berman, because she blames him for canceling Star Trek. It, for the per- sole purpose of trying to make more money off of it through the movies. Which she may not be wrong, but oh. I'm kind of with you. Yeah, I think I think every show has a decision to make eventually because no show, except for Doctor Who, but the, even they had a break. No show lasts forever. All shows run their course. They right. run out of ideas, you know, unless they do a major cast. reshuffling of the deck, you know, with cast or production members. It just runs out of out of steam. Right. Uh, you know, MASH ended, Cheers ended, maybe Happy Days should have ended sooner than it did. Before it jumped the shark? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so I think I think uh, Next Gen went out at a good time myself. I agree. And, you know, you mentioned Doctor Who. I mean, people keep saying, oh, it lasted 23 seasons. It's the longest running show. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, but no, because it was yeah. different. It was different, uh, completely different cast every few years. It was a completely different style and writing staff. So, I mean, yeah, it yeah. lasted 23 years, but it had so many changes that was it really the same show that it started? No. True. And plus, Sylvester McCoy, his his tenure as the Doctor, um, and it wasn't his fault that it ended. But they decided they they ran out of juice. I I think they ran out of juice then. And they and and they canceled the show, right. and then it popped up again in 2005. Totally new people involved in it. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody was brought over from the original production staff. I would be, it would, I would think it'd be a very small number of people. Right. Yeah. So 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 they that was not a reboot in that they started all over again, but uh, you know f- from a from a story standpoint. But they did start over again from everybody involved in in the production. Right. Yeah. No, I and I don't I don't think it's any different than, you know, base you know Star Trek to Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's still the same continuation of the same idea and mm-hmm. universe, but yeah. told in a completely different way. Yep. Yep. Yeah, but nobody says that that Star Trek the original series, uh, was on for uh, ten seasons or whatever, nine seasons. Right, no, yeah. no. Well, I mean, but technically, from different shows, from the first Doctor to the seventh Doctor, that really was twenty-three years. The the two series. No, not including not including the new series. The last season of Sylvester McCoy was season twenty-three. Twenty-three. Okay. Right. Okay. Good point. Good point. Because it is the fiftieth anniversary of the Doctor, right? It is. This year. Yep, in November. Cool. All right, okay. enough Doctor Who talk. We need to get going. Uh, so we'll be back next week with... Uh, we're going to actually do um, a Next Generation Special number one. And so we'll have to wait a little bit to, to find out what happens to uh, Geordi on that planet. And 
we'll start off a Deep Space Nine miniseries, Hearts and Mind, which I think you've already read. Or at least you started it. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. All right, so that'll be uh, episode 116. Cool. Thanks for joining us, everybody. On the review. Take care. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.